most of the positions I've had in working for other people, I've enjoyed, I've added value, and I grew professionally and benefited. But there were one or two roles that as I look back, I think, you know what, that wasn't the best investment of my time. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with Lori Barkman. Lori, are you ready to join the mission? I am ready. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I've turned on my radio voice. <laughs> Ladies it. and gentlemen. So let's have some fun. Well, I want to introduce you to the audience. Lori, the business transition Sherpa, is the former CEO of a $100 million revenue company that was sold to a Fortune 50 company. Lori guides business owners through the often overwhelming process of transition planning. And as a mergers and acquisitions intermediary, she facilitates sell side and buy side transactions in the lower middle market. Lori is the Amazon best selling author of the Business Transition Handbook How to Avoid Succession Pitfalls and Create Valuable Exit Options. And she hosts the award winning podcast succession stories rated in the top 2.5% of podcasts globally. Lori earned an MBA from Carnegie Mellon University and a bachelor's from Cornell University. She received a professional designation from the Alliance of Mergers and Acquisitions Advisors. My goodness, Lori, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you are bringing to this wonderful world. Andrew, thank you so much for that introduction and thanks for having me on your show. My unique value. What is it? It's working with business owners in this next phase of their journey. Transition is a word that I've chosen very specifically because it's a movement. It's not one point in time. It's a phase of time. We've worked so hard to build our businesses. We've taken it on from the next generation or we've acquired it. Nonetheless, at some point, 100% of business owners are going to leave their company one day but very few are prepared. And I am on a mission to help change that. That's, you know, it's a good point. I have a, a coffee factory that I started with my best friend. He runs it and he's been running it for 28 years now in Bangkok. And we were having a meeting with the staff and we were talking about some urgency about something. And we were like, guys, we're almost 60. Can't do this forever, you know? And That's right. Really raised the issue of succession and just the fact that, you know, there's going to come a, a time that we're going to we're going to move on. And it first thing it made me think about is how like a business isn't really your own in a sense. You have it for a period of time. I had this beautiful Lincoln Continental. It was in 1963 and I had it for 10 years in Bangkok. And then there was just time to let it go to someone else. And I think business is, is a lot like that. There just will be will come a time. And if you're not prepared, goodness. Yeah, you can't do exit planning when you're exiting. That's too late. When time is on your side, you can create more options. Mm. And that's what my podcast, my book, and my practice is all about, is working with business owners from transition to transaction and from creating value 
to letting go. And that doesn't happen overnight. Mm. So for the people that are listening or viewing here, if you've got a business and you've been running it for a while and you realize, you know, it's something that, you know, it reminds me, my mother lives with me here in Thailand and my mom and dad did a lot of pre-work on their health directive, healthcare directives and, you know, what they wanted. And it made life so much easier when my dad got sick and we had to make some decisions. I felt the comfort that there was a plan there. And now as my mom's, you know, continues to, to age and she's 85, you know, we have been to the hospital to go and fill out some forms about her living will, as well as we have her living will that she brought from the U.S. And it just brings comfort to know that you've prepared in advance for something that is going to be inevitable for all of us. It sure does. Comfort is a good word. It gives an emotive feeling. A word that I like to use a lot, I encounter a lot with clients is clarity. People who are entrepreneurs and CEOs, they're a lot of times talking to themselves in their head. And a lot of questions are swirling that they don't have answers to. And they will do one of two things. They will swirl on them until it completely, you know, just consumes and they have to do something about it, or they will ignore and put it on the back burner. And (laughs) either way, it's helpful to find someone as a trusted advisor to talk with. So Mm. somebody like myself, when you are, let's say three to five years out from a transition of some sort, and that transition can take various forms, whether you're selling the business or transitioning with your family or management, et cetera. And nonetheless, it's those conversations that are really important to find that clarity and find your path. I work on a planning process with folks to put it together and just that process of of asking questions of what are their goals and what they want to accomplish and why can help set a foundation for making big decisions and also setting options so that you don't lock get locked into one option that falls apart and then you feel like you're starting over. If we are setting option one, two, three, and we are very purposeful about that and we have intent about around it. So a common one would be, should I sell my business to a third party or should I try to sell to management? Mm-hmm. Or another example would be, should I sell to a third party or do my kids want it one day? Those tend to be the most common, but there's other flavors too. And what's the state of family business in America? I know in Thailand and in Asia, it's like every single business is a family business. It's a very small number that are like what you may call in the U.S. like a professional company. But what is the state of family business these days? I think that's pretty common. Most of the companies in the United States are founder-led or family-led businesses. The ones that are publicly traded are a pretty small number. They're the ones that make the headlines in the news, and we can look them up on Yahoo Finance and find out what their value is. But most of the companies in the United States and what's moving our economy are independently owned companies. And so they're really important to the U.S. The Main Street companies, which are under a million in revenue, is one category. The other category, what I say in the lower middle market, it's a pretty broad range above a million to let's say 50 million in revenue mm-hmm. and then beyond that. But the the lower middle market, if you look it up, is a very, very broad range. Some will even say up to 2 billion. <laughs> so most companies do fall under that, of course. But I think that there's, you know, this sort of special place for the two to 20 million revenue company. And mm-hmm. that tends to be the the size client that that I work with and the mergers and acquisitions firm that I'm affiliated with, you know, Stony Hill Advisors, that's 
that's our sweet spot because what we find is the owners are still very much involved in the business, which can be a challenge and also an opportunity. And also, you know, for family businesses, the other thing that I've noticed is quite a bit now that I'm spending more time in this space is more and more educational programs at a university level. So for example, my alma mater, Cornell University, has a Smith Family Business Initiative, which is part of the Johnson MBA school. And when you when you're part of that initiative, you can take courses, there's conferences and things of that nature. You're still graduating with the MBA from the Johnson School, but it's it's a, kind of a specialized area. There's other schools as well with Northwestern and I think in North, it might be Chapel Hill, I'm not sure mm-hmm. exactly, but across the US for sure. And Carnegie Mellon University, I'm an adjunct professor. I didn't have that in my bio, but I'm an adjunct professor of entrepreneurship at Carnegie Mellon in the business school. And we are working on a family business initiative with speakers coming in and other things like that. So it's a growing area. It's a growing area of support. The other dynamic in the United States for family businesses is the age wave. And what this is from baby boomers just generationally needing to transition their business because of age. I'll say Mm -hmm. there's age and there's life stage. And when it comes to this dynamic, it's age-based. And let's face it too, if you're not answering the question of your transition, people around you are wondering. So (laughs) just be mindful of that. Yeah. I was talking to one of my clients and we were talking about how, you know, it could be that their kids don't want to run the business. And what I explained to them is that, you know, legacy is not just, and they were talking about legacy. And I said, legacy is not just that your family is the CEO. For instance, Toyota, one of the biggest family businesses in Asia, out of 12 CEOs from their founding, seven of them were family members, including the latest one that just stepped down. But there was also five that weren't. And so that's one thing. And then I told the story about my family business in Pittsburgh that my great-grandfather started and you know went from 1898 to about 1980 or something along that lines. And then then they sold it. And my father didn't want to work in it. I didn't have any interest in it. And so now it was bought by another firm and you know they're running it the direction that they want to take it. But still there's a legacy there. That doesn't mean there's not a legacy. And so it doesn't always have to be the succession doesn't always have to be that your children run it as an example. That's right. That's a really good point. And it comes back to the family and what's important to the family. And I advise family boards advisory as an advisory board member. This one particular company is a construction company. And the brothers have been talking about these issues without going into too much detail. I'll just say in general, it is a it's a tricky thing when your parents have passed and you can't really ask them. They're not still here. But you're trying to remember, well, what is it that they've said is important to them? But at the same time, they're not here anymore. Mm. And you have to carry this legacy forward. And what might have been said in the past may not be as relevant for the business and for its future sustainability. And so you do have to make, I think, interpretations of what was important to the past, but also be mindful of the future. And Mm. when it comes to, I had a gentleman on my show who's the fourth generation CEO of a publishing company for children's books and content. And one of the things that really struck me in our conversation, he said, it's not about me. It's not about my leadership. It's about the culture we create. It's about the generations to come. And he's working really hard to make it not about 
him and what his ideals are for this company. He really envisions it continuing in perpetuity. And I don't think they've put constraints on, well, it always needs to be run by a family member. Yeah. I think Toyota is really a great one. I've looked at it a lot recently and just the idea that they put in place many years ago, Toyota production system, the Toyota way of thinking, and they maintain that. So, you know, it's a bit inspirational really to talk about it. So, but that's not why we're here. We're here to get to know you for sure, but now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it, then tell us your story. Well, when I think about investment, I think about time, talent, and treasure. And my story is one of not taking the chance on something that I think in the past I maybe I should have. When I was getting my MBA, I was taking entrepreneurship courses. I was the president of the entrepreneurship club. I was really excited about the idea of graduating and going into my own thing. However, I realized that for myself, I did not have the big idea. I did not have the tech skills. And at the time was the late 90s. It was all about tech startups. And I did not have the risk profile. I really didn't. And so what I did instead of starting my own thing or buying something, which I didn't even know was a thing back then that you could buy a business, buy a, buy a business from an owner who was looking for a succession plan, right? I didn't know, I didn't know about that. And instead I joined startups, which in and of itself was a good thing. But I would say that, that so that's the, the kind of the, the talent side mm. on the time side. As I look back at my career, most of the positions I've had in working for other people, I've enjoyed, I've added value, and I grew professionally and benefited. But there were one or two roles that I, as I look back, I think, you know what, that wasn't the best investment of my time. And return on time, you know, we think of, again, investment in terms of money. But what I'm saying here is I'm reflecting on a return on time. And that's my worst investment is I think that for those years, which it wasn't a lot, but hmm. it was enough that that in my memory, I think I probably could have made other decisions about how to spend my time. Hmm. So that's time, talent, and you said treasure? Treasure. Yeah. So I don't have investment, worst investment to say, oh, I bought the stock. I mean, I guess the one thing would be just, I'm not a great investor. I really just want to put it under my pillow and not worry about it. That's mm -hmm. the kind of investor I am. So when I try to do something like, oh, I heard of this stock, I'm going to buy it. It's really stupid. It's like, I heard it on the news and of course it's mm -hmm. too late and I didn't know enough. And I, there was one example, I think it was a 3M stock and it was shooting up and I I said to my husband, oh, we got to buy this. But of course, it was too late. Why did I? So that would probably go under the worst investment because if I laugh at myself and say, I'm not really a good investor, I should just keep it under. It's something I don't look at every day. I don't monitor the stock market, which means emotionally, I don't ride the highs and lows. I'm in it for the long term. I'm all about compound investing. I'm all about you know dollar cost averaging, and I'm happy with that. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I would take away from what you said is the idea of, as I tell people, quit often, quit fast. You know, we don't know. Most of the time in our lives, we don't know where we belong, but we know where we don't belong. And once we get the awareness of where we don't belong, then I think my takeaway is, and I've generally done this, is I've said, okay, I'm out of here. I'm on to the next. 
And my takeaway from what you've said is that don't hesitate. Don't end up, you know, staying in something, you know, that just doesn't bring much value to you. I guess that would be my. my I think that's fair. I think that's fair. There was one position where I stayed there two years and I think it was a mutual, you know, separation. I was making the decision. They were making the decision. And it was like, you know what? It was the right thing to move on. Hmm. And to your point, I probably knew it and they probably knew it sooner than that time frame. But we sort of wanted to make it work. And inherently, as I look back on that, I probably never should have taken that role in the first place. It also, you know, to flip it around as a boss, when you've got someone that you think's probably in the wrong position, don't let it go on that long. You know, try to get them number one into another position in the company if you can, or if it doesn't, if it's not going to work out. Then yeah, there's a saying the in the startup world, you know, like kind of like you said, it's hire slow, fire fast. Yeah. And I think it's I think it comes down to also I try to tell this to my kids and their and their friends as they've been growing up and now going to university and now looking for jobs is try to figure out what you're good at, what you enjoy, what you're not good at and mm. what you don't enjoy. And when you're just getting started in a career, you don't really know how to fill out those boxes. But as you have more and more experience, you really do know where you start to gravitate. And that that I think is one of the main things is to gravitate towards your strengths trust your instincts, you know, and follow your passions if you're clear about what they are. So if we look at a young person who finds himself in the same type of situation, what would be, you know, one action that you'd recommend that they take to avoid, let's say, spending the two years there or whatever that would be? What would you say? I think the instinct's really important. Trust your instinct. If your gut is just saying, you know what, I'm not sure. Trust, trust that little voice. It's a good point that one of the lessons I've learned from this podcast is the value of instinct because we have like mental analysis. We have emotional impacts, you know, of, of the way we emotionally react to something. But instinct is like that fleeting moment. And I, I like to think of it when, um, you know, when you, you've done something horribly wrong and you just like feel sweat come over your head, <laughs> like, like, oh no. And when you have that feeling, it's not really feeling, it's it's an instinctive reaction that your body's going through. And there's meaning to that. And if that's one lesson that I've learned from this podcast, it's that there's meaning to that instinctive reaction. So I think the big takeaway from this discussion is pay attention to that instinct. Absolutely. Yeah. And don't be afraid to act on it. That's another hard part, right? Because you may, because I was thinking about, you know, there's two aspects of this. One is if you're not aware of your instinct or you're not really being aware, first thing is to be aware. But once you become aware, then, you know, take action. All right, let's yeah, talk- I think that I think the visceral part of it, the the body telling the mind, this isn't right. You know, I would have mornings where I would be driving in the office. And I'm dreading getting there. I'm like, oh, what could I do? Only stop for coffee. OK, let me take the long way. Okay. Let me, you know, just didn't really want to be there. My body was sort of, you know, giving me clues. And I would just find that my, if we ever hear the phrase of the mood elevator, right. My mood elevator would go down as soon as I walk in the door and I just knew it wasn't right. Mm. All right. Well, let's, let's talk about a resource that you'd recommend for our listeners. One of your resources in particular or any others. Yeah, for business owners who will 
come across these questions about business transition at any stage of their entrepreneurial journey. You know, you don't have to be three to five years away to read my book, but I would mm-hmm. start with recommending my book, which is the Business Transition Handbook. There's a lot of content and resources and ideas to help you build your business and build it with the mindset of creating value. What creates value? I called it a handbook for a reason because it's actionable. Every chapter is a pitfall to avoid, a succession pitfall to avoid. So there's great content and stories and case studies for companies that had some challenges and had successes along the way. And I think people are, the feedback that I'm getting is is wonderful. People are really enjoying it. And they say, Lori, we feel like we're, you know, you're sort of talking with us in this book and sharing these ideas and stories. And then every chapter ends with an action summary. And what are you going to do? And what's your intent? What's your What's your next steps? And I have a website, thebusinesstransitionsherpa.com. You can get mm-hmm. my podcast is there. The book is there. You can download a complimentary PDF of the book if you would like to go to thebusinesstransitionhandbook.com. That's mm-hmm. the, the book page and specifically. Of course, it's available on Amazon if you want to get your own hard copy. And there's lots of other goodies on my website, other resources to help business owners. That includes two different assessments that folks are welcome to take. One is for business assessment to understand the strengths and opportunities or risks in the business today. Hmm. And if you put in, you share your financial information, you'll also get a valuation of the business, which can be quite helpful that I will meet with people and and discuss Mm. that with them. And then the other is for personal transition readiness. And that's the more emotional side of things, which is really important. I have a third, I have a third assessment, but I reserve that for clients, which is financial. Those are the three aspects of planning, just to put that in perspective that Mm. from a goal setting standpoint. And so some of those resources are available for people anytime. Okay, well, we'll have links to all that in the show notes. So check it out and go and learn more. All right, last question. What is your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, you know, it's funny. I was listening to your your mission. And as you stated it, I thought, wow, you know, I want to be able to shape a mission that's got that sort of broad perspective on it. And your mission, if I'm saying this correctly, is you want to help 1 million people, people reduce risk in their life. Reduce risk and as I frame my mission, which is not here today to say here it is exactly, but mm. I'd love to shape my mission. That's I have the next 12, 12 months. I mean, I'll yep. probably do it sooner than that. So what I'm looking to do is if I can use a placeholder, say I'm looking to help a million business owners with transition. And one of the things that I'd like to do is take my book and make a course out of it. And I think that'll be a way to have broader, a nice broad reach. So the show has a a nice succession stories as a podcast has reached. The book has reached. And I think this course will also have reach to help people. I think that you're on your way, you know, having the, the podcast, the naming of it in relation to what you do, the book, the course, fantastic. It's exciting. And so you are on your way. (laughs) <laughs> I'm on my way. And we'll remember today was the first day that you thought about the mission for a million. That's right. That's right. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. As we conclude, Lori, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of A Stotts Academy, I hereby award you 
alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Just keep on working on your transition. You will always remember the value it brought you. Mm, fantastic. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.